welcome to another episode of our podcast where we talk predominantly about Rust. So tell me, what have you been up to this week? Uh, a lot of random stuff. Um, I got a little distracted uh, from styling uh, GUI applications, which I did make some progress on, but nothing really to write home about or talk about today. Got a little distracted with uh, the Reddit blackout, uh, which I'm a, I'm a longtime Reddit user. Uh, I have even paid for a Reddit premium back in the day when I was gainfully employed. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I was on it back when it was mostly just programming topics way back in the day. And uh, it's the latest events uh, just feel a little tone deaf to the user base. Um, and the the leadership of Reddit seems to be doubling down on their opinions of everything. Um as I mentioned, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to paying for things. Um, and so I would have been totally happy to, to pay for third-party apps. In fact, I do, um, just not as much as I would have needed to. Um, so just overall, I, I feel like they could have handled the situation a lot differently. And the way they're handling it is making me want to abandon Reddit just from out of my own like personal uh, philosophies of, <laughs> of what I would want to support. Um, and so from that standpoint, I tried setting up Lemmy. And Lemmy looks like a really nice project, um, but I had a lot of trouble setting it up. Include I, I filed a bug report pointing out several locations and installation instructions. It just didn't work for me based on a fresh Ubuntu install. Um, basically, I lost an entire day trying to set it up. And at the end of the day, I didn't really feel like it was the right solution. Um, it's, a, it's a cool thing, but a lot of these federated solutions feel disjointed. Um, and that's exactly the, the problem that I faced with, with Lemmy is that, um, okay, well, how do I find where to talk about Rust? Well, I can search this cool tool that people have written that get, allows you to search a bunch of different Lemmy instances for, for Rust communities. So I do a search and now I've got a list of like four or five different Rust communities strewn across four or five different servers. Now let's pretend that I actually have a question I want to ask about Rust. Where do I post it? Like which community should I post it in? Should I post it in all of them? Like how do I determine? That feels like a core problem that is kind of solved by the Reddit solution. I go to the Rust subreddit, right? Um, that just isn't easily answered with Lemmy in their current approach. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot back to like how Usenet worked back in the day <laughs> and things like that and trying to wonder, is there something simpler than ActivityPub that we could do to you know, have a very similar threaded experience that we have with Reddit, um, but have federation more akin to what Usenet did? Because uh, the other half of the problem with a lot of these activity pub things that I see and I'm not intimately familiar with. So uh, the details as to exactly why are, you know, not something that I'm ready to talk about right now. But one of the, uh, you know, one of the things that I've always heard is that, you know, Mastodon and Lemmy and others have trouble scaling when you try to put a ton of users on a single server. Um, and, you know, that's the whole goal of Federation is to split the user base. But if you split the user base, that seems like it makes it harder for the user base to actually find how to talk to each other. It's just a core dissonance in my head that I can't figure out how you take what Lemmy is aiming to do, Lemmy and KBIN and other activity pub styled things, and turn them into something that actually can replace Reddit. So I've been thinking a lot about whether or not like if you think back to the original Reddit, it was really, really basic. Um, it didn't even allow you to upload images. The whole reason that Imager exists um, is because Reddit didn't support image uploads. And so someone created uh, an image hosting site just for Redditors that they could use, you know, to upload images and share them on Reddit. Um, that's 
where it came from. Um, so like, what if we built something that was super, super simple, um, that wasn't as nearly powerful as what Reddit is today, but still provides the communication guarantees, not guarantees, the communication uh, pathways that we kind of hope for, where I want to talk about Rust, connecting me with people talk, to talk about Rust without me having to go find individual locations on individual servers to talk about it. So anyways, I've been very long-winded talking about this. Um, that's, that's how passionate I am about this particular topic. Um, so I, I will turn this back around and ask you uh, what you've been working on. Well, I have been working on my two, as per usual. And as from our last conversation, I have now split my time into working on the two for three days a week. And two days will be spent on on um, catching up with various things in the Rust world. Um, so last week, no, not last week, this week, rather. This week, I have been implementing almost all the widgets, right? So I only have one widget left and that is the the final bits of the viewport and once that's implemented i can go and add all the testing write the documentation and then maybe maybe i can take this for a test drive and try to build something with it. i have a few ideas of what i want to build and implement it with this thing uh, i spent yesterday playing around with your database that was pretty interesting i did this on i did this on stream without reading the documentation and and i'm of course i'm, I'm talking about bonsai db right um I didn't read any of the documentation almost, and I was playing around with this thing, and it was very intuitive. I'm, I'm quite surprised at how far I got without really sort of digging into into how things works. Um, so I think that was really really nice to to do that, and um, and also have a conversation with my community as we're doing that, explaining that there there is no translation into SQL statements. This is not an ORM, but rather we're writing Rust code that is talking to the database. Um, and I thought that was that was that was very nice. Uh, of course, looking at it today, when I showed you a little bit of the code, and um, I could sort of feel you raising an eyebrow across the Ethernet cable there. <laughs> what I've been <laughs> up to <laughs> was uh, um, no database schema there, and and so on and so forth. But in general, I thought it was it was pretty good. I, I got pretty far uh, without that. No, no, yeah, you did great. Uh, all things considering, um, because, uh, well, w- the thing that we talked about a little bit this morning, turns out that when I went and looked at my user guide that I wrote, um, I thought that I told you how to do one thing and then showed you the other thing. Cause that was kind of the, uh, I don't know, goal of what that page was supposed to do. I thought, uh, but then as I looked at it, I was like, Oh wait, there's th- that doesn't have a snippet of code for showing you how to do it this way. And, um, that was just missing. So, uh, that's, that's the invaluable part of having people try out your stuff. Um, is that as long as you keep an open mind, you can learn all sorts of stuff that, you know, yeah, technically there are examples that showed you how to do what you wanted to do simpler in various locations. But as you said, you were trying to do this on stream, which means you're, you know, not, you're not able to focus on everything all at once, right? I can't slow down and read. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And so the fact that you got stuff working on stream is great. I, I'm very happy with that. And I'm sure there's a lot of little things I can learn to try to like, like improving that, you know, uh, user guide page to, to, to spell out that other flow a little bit better. Um, you know, these are all things that I, I take notes on and, uh, try to improve over time. So thank you for, for trying it out. Um, you're also working on something else you're about to say, and I interrupted you. Oh well, no, I don't. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, didn't um, really. I, I, it was more of an educational thing today. I started digging into um, some graphics programming, and uh, again, like like um, when you, when you're doing things on stream, it's kind of fun um, 
but it has to be very high paced. So you can't really stop and just sit quietly and read for 30 minutes because these, they, 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 you're losing your, your crowd by doing that. Basically, could you guys just wait while I go and read this book and we'll come back and talk about it later? It doesn't really work. Um, so you sort of have to adapt and read very quickly and, and sort of guess a lot of, of the stuff. There's no, you, of course you can, you can stop and read and, and take your time doing things, but then you're not going to have the kind of fast paced, um, stream content that people are expecting these days. What I, what I do think is very interesting, and I would like to see this more. I would like to see people streaming using um, open source software like I did myself, because this is really, you can get a really good perspective in, in how someone's using something. And then the question kind of becomes, um, are you just bad at figuring things out or does my software need more um, documentation or does it need to be more intuitive? Um, and, and this is what we kind of did. Well, pro- pe- people probably still do this, but I remember this from my, from my days in, 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 in um, working as a, a commercial programmer, as a permanent employee for a company in London. We would go to this agency and they would pay people to sit and use um, our product. And we would stand there behind this like two-way mirror and observe people using things and and they would do things that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect people to do, right? They would they would mm-hmm. click on things, they would do things, they would try to to do various things. I think if if anyone if anyone ever did this, then then every single website that has a password field, every every single implementation of this password field would realize that not only do you need a password field, but you also need to specify, are you expecting at least eight characters and a number? Do I have to have an uppercase character? If this stuff was just there in the password field, right? Because I think this is, as an example, this is what most people do. They enter a password if they're not using a password manager. They enter a password and it doesn't work because there's some criteria you didn't know on, and now you've got to do it twice. It would, be, it would almost be interesting. Actually, it would be interesting to know how many many people fail at creating the first password like what 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 are, what are the percentage of that and now most of us use password <laughs> managers in in in, in I'm, I'm guessing most of us programmers use password managers i don't know why i think that i just think but that. but even then though there some websites have very esoteric rules and my default password manager generation stuff doesn't fit the pattern and so i'll have to like do a custom generation for certain websites because you know, they don't allow the special character that my password generator actually used or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. It's, it still is a wild, wild west out there with uh, password validation, it seems. Oh, yeah, my, my favorite, my favorite is this password input field has no max length, but on the login screen, it does, right? Have you, have you ever run into this? <laughs> I haven't, but that's a great one. <laughs> the, the password that you register with does not fit when you go to, to, to log in. And there's like, there's, I'm, I'm sure there are more people out there with horror stories of these things. And, and I'm just using password as an example. So to come back to what I was talking about, like showing people um, how their software is used, I think that's really good. And there are two reactions that you can have to this. One is being very dismissive, saying, well, you just don't understand our software. Um, and, and the other one is to actually draw um, some value out of that and understand that maybe 
maybe the software wasn't perfect and we can do something about that. So I think it's, I think it's kind of fun. It's been interesting to stream this stuff. Um, and, and I'm actually quite happy that you didn't see the stream. Cause I think that it would have been, it would have been <laughs> quite trying to, to see that happening. Well, like, I haven't actually promised that I'm not going to look at your VOD. This so is unless true. you delete it between now and then, um, I may still fast forward through it because, um, you know, I've, I've had a couple other users who have streamed, uh, using it and, uh, I'll put them on, uh, in the background while I, while I work away and uh, you know, I'll sometimes hear them start struggling with something. I'll pay a little more attention and I'll try to see, is there something I, you know, could have done to help out. One of the hardest problems about uh, seeing someone stream your stuff is that there's usually some sort of stream delay. And so if I try to help out, there's often a delay and that can just, that can cause extra confusion, you know? And so I, I often don't tend to try to chip in too much um, unless there's like, you know, something I can really hopefully point them to that will solve their problems instantly. <laughs> but uh, otherwise I, I try to let them just do what they're doing. Cause they're, they're more likely going to try to, they'll figure it out eventually. Most likely is, is my hope. <laughs> and if not, I'll learn a lot along the way. You do need to have a little bit of context when you are chatting, because as you say, there is a delay. And when someone when someone just makes a reference to something without context and say, oh, you know what, you, you've, you've used a slice there, or you, you're going to use a slice there, but you've accidentally used an array uh, reference or whatever, right? So, so someone would just say, uh, you need to use a slice. That's all you have. So by the time you read the comment and you, you've gone way, way past what, what I was even referring to, you have no idea what's happening. But, but in, in general, I think it's really good to, to do that. I think it's very interesting to, to, um, to see. As a matter of fact, when, once I finish my, my text user interface library, when I, when I finish my anathema library, I would love to see people uh, try to build things with this, see how they're doing and, and whether, what I can improve to make the user experience better because the user experience is very, very important. Or development experience is that, is that what we say? The DX, right? It's very important when you're, when you're, when you're building with software, right? It, it can't just be efficient. It has to be efficient and user-friendly as well, right? You have to be able to use it. Um, yeah, so maybe I should return the favor and uh, and let you watch me try to use uh, Anathema once uh, once you're ready, <laughs> and I'll come up with some project that uh, you know I can try it out with. That w- that would be that would be great. I I, I must make sure to have documentation though, because I, I think it's going to be that <laughs> intuitive. Um, I think maybe you know what? Maybe you should watch the VOD just to sort of see me sit there and go uh, remove. Removal? No. Delete? Delete? No? Okay. And then eventually sort of just guess the keyword and be like, all right, success, move on. Okay. I think there could be <laughs> some entertainment value in that, right? Yeah. So, you know, when, you, when you've been working on a database, then one of the things that are very important, because this is something that we, we care a lot about um, in the world of programming, even though we shouldn't, and we 100% should, we should care a lot, but at the same time, we shouldn't. And that's benchmarks. You must have done a lot of benchmarking when you were developing your database. Yeah, and I did it all wrong. It's great. <laughs> okay. So don't do not do what I did, um, which, no, uh, I can link to the blog post when I discovered uh, that I wasn't actually F-syncing data in my database, kind of, you know, important details. Um <laughs> I guess I should explain this a little bit more. Otherwise, it's going to sound like I'm a really bad developer. Um, so, uh, 
if uh if you ever look at the standard library uh documentation for flush for a file um it says that it flushes all bytes out to uh the final output or final sync or something like that um i'm doing this from memory so it may have even changed since then um and uh that's actually on a trait, um, write, uh, IO write. Um, and so it's not actually talking about what the file implementation does. It's just saying that this function is going to flush all of the buffered bytes to the final sync. Well, I interpreted the final sync as being the final, uh, the file itself. But it turns out that standards F stud FS file, its implementation of flush is a no op. And it's because uh, it doesn't actually have its own buffer. Technically, the file might be buffered by the operating system, which is my brain is what I was trying to flush. Um, but there's no like actual buffer on the Rust side of code, and that's what that con that's what the documentation was actually saying. So uh, it turns out that I wasn't actually invoking the right function, which is uh, um, sync data, to cause the f sync to actually happen to write the data to disk. If that was the one problem with benchmarking, that would have been great. Only one thing, right? <laughs> no, there's a second problem with my benchmarking. Um, so once I figured fixed that, magically my benchmarks weren't any slower, and I scratched my head for a few days. Um, I released the update so that it was actually f-syncing, and when I was running one of my benchmark suites for Bonsai, I was like, "Wow, this is this is a lot slower than I remember. What's going on?" And that's when I finally realized that uh, the that Bonsai DB test suite was actually testing in a local directory as opposed to the temporary directory. So what people may not, who are listening may not realize is that on Linux, um, slash temp is often mounted using something called tempfs. It's not mounted using your root file system. Well, what does tempfs do? It purposely avoids writing anything to disk. <laughs> so, so that's why my benchmarks <laughs> remained fast. Was, uh, you know, if you test with a temporary directory. So um, I then went and looked at some of the other Rust databases, and I found at least one other uh, that was uh, also testing against a temporary directory. I uh, pointed that out to them, um, and, you know, they, they fixed it. Uh, but thankfully for them, their benchmarks weren't really affected uh, either. Um, uh, but, in a, you know, because they... Uh, their are uh, ultimately my approach to f-syncing was slower than theirs um and so th their approach was was more correct um so anyways that spawned a long rewrite thing um and and there i can link to some issues to show the progress on, on where i'm at with uh rewriting bonsai db storage layer uh but yes i have tested a lot <laughs> um and i would uh recommend uh making sure that you are actually testing what you think you're testing um and uh, i don't know how i would have prevented this uh earlier um you know the person who reported it to me uh literally ran uh you know some of my stuff with uh, uh was it uh dtrace uh to 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 log out all the syscalls um and uh and they discovered that there was no f-sync syscalls so um so no i uh i don't really know uh beyond uh <laughs> trying to make sure you're testing these are anecdotes that weren't actually answering the question i'm sorry um I, I just try to look at what I think are the flows that um, matter the most. Um, so from, you know, inserting into a database is something that I care about speed of. Querying the database, you know, makes a lot of sense to, to, to benchmark. Um, but the more that you get complicated in your benchmarks, the more likely that it's hard to understand why the benchmark is performing the way it is. And so I am a fan of micro benchmarks 
a little bit more than like full on benchmarks, if that makes any sense. Yes. Um, because I, I, I find it easier to, to reason and optimize smaller chunks of things as opposed to the overarching, uh, entire solution, which probably to optimize it is going to need algorithmic changes as opposed to, Oh, I just need to not call, you know, clone there, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that I tend to start with at least the micro style benchmarks and then, uh, and then branch out from there. What, what about you? What, what, what kind of benchmarking have you been doing lately or recently? And, um, what do you, what is your kind of general philosophy on it? I don't think I've done any useful benchmarking recently since I've been working on, um, fixing things, but I was working on, uh, optimizations that were done in a, or measured in a very, um, very primitive way by just using system time in the lab. So I've been monitoring the various tasks in, in terms of, of drawing a frame, right? So from, from having user input, going through the update state, generating widget trees to drawing on the screen, I sort of just timed all of this out and I kind of just watching that move. And in my case, this was very easy because I had a really bad implementation that was very, very slow. So it was very easy to see that. But I didn't write any useful benchmarks around this stuff. Instead, I sort of went, okay, listen, this this is bad. I can't keep doing this, right? Which gave, because the reason for this was because I was building widget trees that weren't even displayed. So even though I kept building up something that was never going to appear on screen, basically. Um, but benchmarking is interesting. It's something that we tend to look at when we go to evaluate something. You know, we talked about creative evaluation last time, and um, and I look at benchmarks sometimes. I um, mm -hmm. I'm guilty of looking at benchmarks. Um, benchmarks when you are when you're writing code and you decide that you're going to make your code better or faster, more optimized. The the only sensible thing to do is to write a benchmark, then do the optimization, and, and then run the benchmark against the optimization, right? You want to see if you actually manage to improve performance, because otherwise it's, you know, otherwise we're just fixing things in the dark. We have no idea if we're making things better or worse, other than, yeah, I got a good feeling about this. Let's just, let's just go with it, right? So I think <laughs> benchmarks are super important. But then at the same time, we have this, we have this way of using benchmarks for 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 a selection process. So there are uh, there are things out there. Okay, I want to use a, a web framework in in, in Rust. And and what I what I remember uh, from is it like Tech Empower that Actix Web is the fastest web framework out there, and so on and so forth, right? But then when you look at how a benchmark is is done versus how you're gonna use it. They, they're not really the same thing, right? Unless you're writing mm -hmm. a, a, if you're building a web server, the purpose is just to read our fortune cookies, then, then, then the benchmark doesn't really say much, right? So we kind of use benchmarks and, and we can build something that is fundamentally slow at everything you want to do. But we can, we can have a really fast benchmark showing you how fast this is compared to everything else and say, listen, you should use this. This is really fast at, and it's, I'm not talking about actics now. Okay. Let's be clear. Okay. <laughs> um, 
But you can say, listen, use this thing. It's insanely fast, right? It will, it will blow your socks off, right? And, and, and you can look at the benchmark. You can even reproduce the benchmark. And, and like, this will solve all your you know, fortune cookie printouts. And then you take this thing and you start building with it, but it's convoluted to use. It's difficult to use. And by the time you're done, you have a terrible performance because the benchmark didn't really cover any of your use cases. We just we just looked at a benchmark and we thought, all right, this this thing must be good. If I use this thing, it's gonna be fast and amazing, right? So that's that's the bad part about benchmarks. This is why we, we shouldn't really trust benchmark. Yeah. I actually put a disclaimer on all my benchmarks f- exactly for that reason. Um, so uh, I, I'll for some of my like generic libraries, like the the most recent ordered map library. Um, there's a benchmark in there um, for testing against B tree map and hash map because I wanted to see, you know, is there any merit to a no unsafe, you know, map that uses ord instead of hashing? Um, and yeah, it turned out it was it was fine. But I put it in benchmarks, and the reality is is that I know that. Uh, those benchmarks are designed okay, but they don't tell you how it's going to behave in your application because the key type matters. You know, uh, the the value type matters too because the value size is going to impact the cache, uh, how much is going to be in the CPU cache at any given time when you're scanning through the structure. Like, there's all sorts of variables that mean that even though I show you a benchmark, you can't really assume that it's going to do the exact same performance in your application. So I always put a little snippet that's like, you know, you shouldn't make decisions about whether or not you want to use this library based on these benchmarks. Uh, these just show you roughly the, the performance characteristics and you should always benchmark your own use case uh, when evaluating a library if performance is, is that critical. And I, that's how I always view benchmarks too, is I use them as a guide, like roughly what seems like it's the fastest library out there. And then if it's truly performance critical, um, I will, I'll benchmark it. You know, I will, I will, I will try my own thing out rather than trusting those benchmarks. Um, and the same thing happens with serialization. I wrote a JSON library last November that I released that the whole premise was to, uh, avoid, um, parsing string contents, uh, so that it, always borrowed never allocated with Sirde json um with uh if a if a string contains an escape code um the string gets allocated when it's parsed even if it's a, a cow because it can't borrow it and so the whole idea was uh if you're only caring about little tiny portions of a json file um can you skip any of the string decoding and allocations and only do it on demand when needed and if so does that benefit you speed wise and the answer is in very specific situations, yeah, it can. But in most situations, you should just use certain adjacent, right? Um, so it's, it's just one of those weird things. I don't know. Um, everyone should always test their own uh, use cases rather than trusting other people's benchmarks. That's just a fact of life, sadly. And I would say on top of that, uh, you should never trust a benchmark if, or rather you should not trust the results of a benchmark if you can't run the benchmark yourself, right? So um, any mm-hmm. website claiming something but not providing the source code to replicate it has zero credibility in my eyes. Like if you can't, if you can't show me how I can run these benchmarks and 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 find this out for myself, then then you might as well be be uh, it might as well be snake oil, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anytime that I see people taking a a, a big stance about how their performance is so big. Uh, or so, so big, so so much better than something else. Um, I always want to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because um, if it's a commercial project in any way, most likely they're cherry picking what they're testing. 
um, and they're oh, well, not necessarily. They may be testing all sorts of stuff, but what they wrote about in the article <laughs> is where they win. They don't they don't cover necessarily where uh, you know they don't win, right? And that's the part that's really hard to see is um, unless you're just looking at a comprehensive benchmark suite. It's really hard to know what the performance is actually going to be in your application, even even then. Still, um, I think the other thing that we didn't, you know, we've mentioned on previous podcasts, but we didn't in this conversation yet is when to benchmark. Um, and to me, that's only once you notice that you're having performance issues. Um, that's not a hundred percent true. Sometimes you know that you're going to need to scale to X number of users or whatever. Um, in which case simulating a load of that many, you know, or simulating an environment with that many, you know, users is totally a valid way to benchmark and make sure that you're going to be able to perform without having to wait for you to get to that many users. Right. Um, but I would say, first and foremost, make your code readable and maintainable. And then only once you notice performance issues, do you benchmark and optimize and optimize and optimize, right? Which may lead to code that's slightly less, you know, readable uh, because, you know, you just had to move something around differently uh, that makes it harder to read or something, you know, I don't know. Um, But it makes it, you know, avoid a clone or something like that. I had a similar conversation with someone today on my Discord uh, they they asked me a little bit about um, software the, the software development process and and um, uh, without going into detail since it was a private message but I, I, my answer in the end was you kind of put together something rough and then you improve it and you improve it and you improve it and you improve it and I was like so that's kind of the software development process and you you and you you never you never done this is why we're never done right there's always some kind of improvement we can do. And, and therefore, software is never finished, right? It's just released. And then we're going to keep keep improving on it forever and ever, hopefully. Right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what, what I, one, one of those things, right? This is another conversation that comes up um, sometimes. And that is uh, whether you build your projects as a workspace or whether you just dump everything into modules under the same... Um, uh, project and the same crate. Now, obviously, this is there. There is a, a um, if we're building Hello World or we're building, uh, you know, a single binary small application, there is no need to make a workspace. But do you do you tend to favor workspace for larger projects, or do you try to keep everything in the same crate but with multiple modules instead? What's your take on this? Ah, that's a very complex question. I think that there's no right answer because of how it's phrased that, that different situations are going to, to require different solutions, I guess. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, let's say that I was going to start writing that Reddit replacement. <laughs> um, you know, that, I think the, that it would start as a single crate, a uh, single project. Um, uh, you know, and then as it grew larger, I might realize that I need a separate, you know, client versus the server, you know? Um, and so at that point I would decide, is this one crate with multiple feature flags or is it separate? And one of my, just one of my questions for that is, you know, what dependencies do these require these things have? If the list of de- dependencies is completely different. Um, so like, for example, I don't know, if we're using WebSockets uh, on a client, I have Tokyo Tungstenite or something like that. And on the server, I might just use Axum's native, you know, WebSockets or Warp's native WebSockets or whatever. Um, and so there's two separate WebSocket implementations there with two separate 
separate dependency trees. <laughs> and so at that point, I would say that having the client in a separate crate from the server makes a lot of sense, and I would convert it to a workspace. Um, and then similarly, at that point, now I've got you know potentially types that need to get shared between the two, and now I've already got a workspace. So I'm going to be adding you know another crate for the sharing of types. Um, you know, do I break it down beyond that? Uh, maybe, maybe not. My my goal would be to minimize the number of crates for something that I might upload to Crates IO because. I, I don't know. I don't like having a ton of crates on crates.io. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of criteria in how I go about breaking things up, but I do it from a practical standpoint of how do I make my code easier to maintain, manage, read, you know, all that stuff, as opposed to having a hard and fast rule that every time I do X, it's time to create a new crate or something like that. I don't know. What, what, what's your philosophy? Well, I think it's it's a little bit similar, right? I I do like I do like to use workspaces because um it gives me the illusion that every new feature is a greenfield project. No, no, not <laughs> really for that, right? But it kind of makes it easier to create a very clean separation in your code because there's kind mm-hmm. of a like if you build uh, another crate inside a workspace, you can choose to just expose a very small API. So it's, it's a lot easier to reason about and and sort of handle the the um, the issues right with the code when when they inevitably comes up right. So I prefer to create workspaces and and or have multiple crates right. But this comes down to what you're saying right. When you do that and you go to publish your crates, you're actually going to end up publishing multiple crates. And some of these crates don't even make sense to exist outside of your workspace. Right? There's, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think I have a crate that is specific for text layout in my project. And there is really no reason for anyone to use this outside uh, of my project, but it's going to be published as a crate anyway. Um, and uh, there are there are things like the the the, the parsing and the VM, which is going to exist. There's, again, there's no reason to ever have that as dependency for any other project, um, but it's going to be there, right? So you can't really have you can't sort of have private crates inside of workspace and you just publish the workspace as one thing, can you? Right? No, but I would I would question whether or not those could be modules that restrict a lot of their types and signatures and stuff to be private within the module so that the public API to the rest of the crate is still purpose-built. Um, and then you're not having to worry about uploading to crates IO. Nice. This obviously breaks if you're trying to use it from multiple crates within, you know, your entire solution, right? But if you're only using it in one location, maybe it could just be a module with a limited public interface. It could be, but there's always a temptation of solving the problem by just making it pub crates. And then yeah. you kind of you're sort of walking across that border that you shouldn't, right? You're now into into sort of polluting your your code a little bit with 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 making these publics, and I think the workspace makes this quite elegant. It makes it very nice from a development perspective. Say, okay, look, this is an individual crate. I'm gonna I'm gonna build this, implement this, write tests, write benchmarks, and do all these things. And then finally, in the libRS, I'm just gonna expose this very basic API. And then I go back to the other, to the, like the main crate, and I pull this in, and I just use these two structs or functions or whatever from there without having to worry too much about all the underlying stuff. Uh, but the mm-hmm. underlying code 
might be sort of semi-relevant. So I should, then the question becomes, should I change the interface and rewrite something or should I just make this public just to sort of get past this thing? And I think the temptation of making things public and not keeping that isolation, the discipline, it's it's sometimes a little bit too tempting. So so this is why I really enjoy that I can create these kind of workspaces and these crates. I, I kind of I, I don't know what I would have in place of this, but I wish there was a way for me to publish just like one public crate and the other crates sort of private. I get that's the module system, but at the same time, what I said, I think this still applies, right? You 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 are you are tempted to make things public that shouldn't be public. Even within just the crate, you're sort of tempting to pollute the, the whole thing, which is what what I kind of sort of think. And I and I've read a few posts um or, or GitHub issues around this this, but I, I'm not I'm I'm not a lone lunatic wanting this. So I think there's 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 other people who have have asked for this as well, so I think they might have uh, might have merit. But uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's um, that's my kind of uh, that's my kind of thinking right around there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, modules obviously can't have separate dependency trees and stuff like that, separate feature flags, you know. Um, and so there's uh, there are cr- I have crates in my various things that are documented as in general you shouldn't need to rely on this crate directly. Um, type in things at the top of their readme to try to dissuade people from when they poke around being like, Oh, maybe I should import this. Uh, when in reality, like they're not going to actually be able to use that API in any meaningful way because they're not able to access the inner hooks that I know of or whatever. You know, that <laughs> they sort don't of stuff. have all the secrets. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, even just from the type system, even though the, that functionality is public, um, it may be tied together in such a way that, um, what the what the end user is using there's no way to provide the types from that other crate to right but your 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 type that they're interacting with under the hood still uses those things right um so that mm. it may truly be pointless the crates out there people could try to use it but unless they go and write whatever your crate did in the first place uh they they would have to reimplement the whole thing basically so yeah it's i i think that it would be cool to have that sort of thing um um Something very recently that's just tangential. I'm gonna to have to try to find this link. Um, apparently, there's this uh, a way to make it uh, a proposal to add kind of a front matter in comment form uh, that allows you to put a cargo toml at the top of a Rust file so that you can have a single file crate, so to speak, um, such that you know the cargo is in the file and you can just file, you know, you don't have to have a whole folder structure with a separate um, cargo Um So I'll link to that proposal. I don't, I don't know if it's been accepted it, or anything. It has. That RFC has been accepted. I'm very excited. There oh, cool. Was, so someone actually mentioned this to me uh, the other day on, on stream as well. Uh, and I'm very excited about that because this kind of goes in the opposite direction. Now we can just throw a .rs file somewhere and then just yeah. equip, Vim snippet to dump the sort of standard cargo tomo thing in the comments and and off we go right uh, and I think that's that's very exciting that that has been accepted it's going to be a while until we see that but I'm looking forward to that Rust release that's going to be kind of big um, when that comes out I think it's going to be very very cool to have that it's it's not going to make Rust into a scripting language and and I don't think anyone necessarily wants that but it will make it very quickly or easy to sort of just hack out some kind of quick Rust program to do some 
simple task or whatever and just you know quickly compile that and 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 off you i say quickly compile that but obviously if you're going to have a lot of large dependencies there is no quickly about it right it's just gonna, it's going to take its take its time <laughs> right but but yeah no so i'm, I'm very excited about too, that, that that one too as well i think that's it's going to be very exciting um do you know what do you know what we can we can we can there's no natural segue into these things so i'm just going to awkwardly shoehorn this in there right um unsafe code i think we might have touched on well this. i mean unsafe code is something you always want to just shoehorn in places you, right this is you're making this segue work for me thank you you mean like shoehorn your unsafe code in there it's unsafe we don't need a segue <laughs> it's just it's it's this own segue this is it's perfect right um yeah so do you do you write a lot of unsafe code I try not to. Um, I think I mentioned briefly on the last podcast that hmm. like every time that I see a crate that has unsafe code, um, it's something that I need to either check out or at least go look at the issues list. I need to verify whether or not there's people using it. You know, there's all sorts of things that make me question how safe that crate actually is. Um, it's totally valid to have unsafe code. There's good ways to write it and get good performance out of it. Um, but at the end of the day, if I'm evaluating someone else's crate and they have unsafe code, I have to worry a little bit about it. You know, I have to think about it. Whereas if there's no unsafe code, then you can just trust it. Well, I mean, it could still have bugs, but at least it's not going to cause like random crashes, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. Generally undefined behavior (laughs) as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so from that standpoint, I personally prefer to give people libraries that don't have any unsafe code for that mentality right there. Um, but that being said, there's a there's situations where you just can't avoid it. Um, you, you were messing around with WGPU as you pointed out, and there's a couple of spots in there that um, you still have to use unsafe uh, when you're uh, interacting with the device hardware because it's inherently unsafe. <laughs> you know, there's certain things you have to uphold, um, and if you don't uphold them, you're going to probably crash. Um, and so, yeah, there's this stuff you can't avoid it, um, but I try to avoid it, and that goes back to our benchmarking talk: is that the only time that I even consider using unsafe for optimization is only once I've exhausted all my benchmarking and I can't figure out any other way in safe code to speed it up anymore, I might try to do something in unsafe. And again, I'm going to benchmark and and see, can I actually get it faster with unsafe? If not, then I tear the unsafe back out. (laughs) So I don't know. Uh, What about you? How much uh, unsafe do you find yourself writing? Uh, You know what? I'm going to say I'm writing most of my unsafe code for fun. It will be... Um, a conversation with someone in my community and we start writing ridiculous code and we write ridiculous code for the sake of being and doing ridiculous things, right? And so most of my unsafe code that I write is to demonstrate undefined behavior, right? So we can we can use unsafe to grab a mutable pointer and then we can have, uh, we can then get a mutable reference from that. And of course we can, make two mutable references from that and 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 uh, there we have undefined behavior right there and 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 so it, that's usually what i end up doing with unsafe code is is showing how to produce undefined behavior in in rust but there is there is something about unsafe code that i do want to talk a little bit about and it's it's we kind of i don't i don't know if this is highlight it, it might be okay it, it was a long time since i looked at the rust book i don't even know what that looks like today um i haven't read the rust nomicon in forever so this might full disclaimer what i'm saying might be written there but um but i want what i want to talk about is unsafe code 
is a lot harder in Rust than other languages that don't make the same safety guarantees as Rust because you have a lot more um, you have a lot more contracts you have to uphold, a lot more invariants, right? You mm-hmm. you can't, for instance, create two mutable references to to the same thing, right? That's that's not allowed. Um, the Rust police will get you for doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and amongst other things, right? There are um, things like transmuting between structs, even if they have the same. Uh, even if you've written out your code to have a certain order to your fields and the data types are the same, the only thing that is different is the name. That is still undefined behavior to transmute between these two. Uh, of course, with some some asterisks there, right? Like uh, some asterisk, not not the uh, not not asterisks and obelisks, right? But, but some asterisks to this thing um, is that you can have repr C on these and and and, and so on, and repr transparent uh, and, and use numerical types and all that. But uh, but the, the, my my point is. It is a lot harder to write unsafe Rust code than it is to write uh, in other languages that don't offer the safety guarantees, right? So uh, what I would love to see, I would love to see some kind of easily digestible, and maybe I'm asking for a unicorn here, but some kind of list of rules to uphold and patterns on how to uphold these things, because um, there, there is, I don't, I don't, I don't see a way for someone to write a lot of unsafe code safely, right? I don't, I don't see where are you gonna learn about all these rules, right? And they, they probably are somewhere, right? But I'm, I'm just saying in general, I would love to see this kind of list. I'm pretty sure the Rust Nomicon has a list of those things that are considered unsafe um, and kind of the guarantees that you're supposed to hold up. But I agree that it's just hard. Um, the 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 reason why it's tricky is that you you one of the goals of the unsafe code is often to interact with the safe code um so the the boundary between safe rust and unsafe rust um in unsafe rust you can get around the multiple mutable references by having multiple mutable pointers it's okay to have multiple pointers to the same thing um it's just not okay to have multiple mutable references to the same thing um and so there's ways to interact with these things via pointers which give you know puts you in full control of everything which you know is is the thing but then the moment that you need to interact with safe rust and give a mutable reference to that pointer you need to make sure that you haven't handed another one of those out anywhere else that sort of stuff right um and how do you do that well i don't know <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why i avoid writing unsafe code is it's hard like i don't i don't know any way to make this easier honestly um i i do think you're asking kind of for a unicorn uh, that being said we almost have a unicorn which is miri um uh, which i'll link to in the show notes uh but it allows you to run your test uh, essentially using i think like a virtual machine type environment under the hood um and it checks that all of the, you know, borrows are following the stacked borrow rules, you know, and various other things. And it can even, uh, uh, simulate, um, the atomic instructions, like we use atomic U32 or something like that to add. Uh, it can simulate those things going out of order as well to make sure you don't have any, uh, issues with your atomics. Like it is a magical tool that if you run your tests under it, it might just point out, Hey, you've got some broken stuff. Um, which is, which is great. Um, and it's mostly focused around unsafe code, but like I said, even atomics and stuff, which are completely safe, uh, it has tools to help with too. So uh, even if you don't have unsafe code, it might be worth running a, a Miri against your product project just to uh, see if it has any warnings or errors. Does does Miri work even if you don't hit? So so you might have like a, a, a branch right where 
where you're you're doing some unsafe code and when you run Miri, it doesn't hit that branch. Does it still erase a, no. a, an error or, or return an error? As far as I'm aware, no. Um, but I could be wrong. So someone can correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure that it only covers code that's actually executed. I, I think so. I, I, I like to think that that was the case, right? Um, as, because you can obviously, you can create two mutable references and never use them. And Rust is totally just going to throw them away because you're not doing anything with them. So it looks from your right. syntax like you have multiple mutable references, but then it's either disposing of the code or it's just reborrowing. Uh, the mutable references in, in between. It's very, very clever mm-hmm. the way that works. Right? Yes. But yes, Mira is absolutely a fantastic tool. If you are venturing into the murky waters of unsafe Rust, you should definitely run Miri on your code to make sure that you're not violating any of these uh, rules, whether it's mut- multiple mutable borrows or some other um, other one of these. Now, I do think you're right that a lot of these rules are outlined in the Rust Nomicon, but I don't think that it's a, like a definitive list. And, and I think perhaps maybe a definitive list isn't really possible. I just, maybe maybe really what I what I should be asking for is sort of a bit more in-depth um, and, and a little bit more clarification on common things that looks like they're correct, but they are not, right? That's Maybe that's well, what... That'd be a good one. I like be, the yeah. idea of that a lot. It's like a, a nice uh, page somewhere that's like, here's, here's some common things that we found in various unsafe code that we've then fixed, and here's how we fixed it. Yeah. I think uh, I think that would be that would be very nice, right? And who knows? Maybe that sort of thing exists. If it does, please let us know. Um, at the bottom of our show notes is always a, a list of how to reach us. Uh, podcast at wayofthecrab dot com. Uh, we have a Discord server, and uh, um, what was the third thing that we have there? Uh, we have an email. I don't address. remember, but. Um, oh, GitHub <laughs> discussions. Yeah, there we go. That was the third one. We have an email address. I don't know if anyone ever uses uh, the, the email address, though, but we do have... We do, we do. and um, I, I actually, sadly, a couple things went to spam, and I only just noticed yesterday. So um, if, you've, if you've emailed us, you're getting a response very soon, I promise. <laughs> well... There, yes, there is. There is that. You know, one question that we uh, we took off of last uh, last week's I think is worth at least mentioning. Um, uh, and actually, let me go find uh, the user uh, who who asked it real quickly. Actually, maybe 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 not. Someone asked us. Apologies. I'll I'll try to mention it in the show notes. What what were you considering doing with open sourcing our project? And I. I think that we've talked about mostly that we want everything we do to be as open source as possible. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanted to say, even though we may not be able to get into very specifics, um, is that I, I think that building um, a game that we want to we want to do uh, will necessarily have like some sort of engine of sorts. And I would love for whatever that core piece is, whatever we build, to be completely open source. Um, and that's just because I, you know, I think that if there's something that's truly meant to be something that's for the community, and if we decide that we don't want to pursue it any further, other people should be able to run with it. That's just, you know, mm. that's, that's my philosophy. And I would hate to be, uh, the reason why a project died. Like if I just lost interest and other people wanted to continue it, I, I would, it would, it would, I don't know, break my heart <laughs> that that wouldn't be a possibility. <laughs> so I'm sure that there's going to be certain things that we're going to want to have licensed in a more private way, like specific art or something like that. Um, and, and those things will be a little bit more restricted, but, uh, I, I would like to make as much of whatever we build, um, as open source as possible. What do you think? 
there are some things that we obviously can't make open source, and that is if we are uh, writing things into the game that should be discovered through playing the game rather than reading the source code for the game. Mm-hmm. Right? So there is that uh, as well, of course. But I absolutely, I think open source is is um, the way to go, right? As much open source as possible because it's not only that, but it's also nice to be able to have that level of transparency as well. So you can actually see what is going on. You can see the people are working on a project and because there's far too much of of radio silence, right? You you see a lot of uh, uh, grand promises about various things and then nothing is happening and you don't know if anyone is working or not. Whereas uh, yeah. with us, you would be able to hopefully see whether we are being lazy or we're actually doing something or, you know, what is happening. I shouldn't say being lazy. There are other commitments in life that one has to attend to. But sorry, um, I, I'm having a child. I can't, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't come to the computer right now or, or whatever it is, right? But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I think making everything that's possible without ruining the game experience open source, because there's always a balance, right? Um, that's, that's, uh, that's my take on it. Yeah, I agree. We don't want to make it easy for people to data mine. Um, in, in my thoughts, I've always, um, I've always thought that maybe most of the, the story content and even like the specific values for like what things are damaging what, you know, would be um, hopefully generic at the engine level and would be like database entries, you know, uh, that, so like the, the secret sauce of our game might be the database itself, not the actual engine, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and since it's an MMO, the entire database isn't getting shipped to uh, the individual um, yeah, game clients. Uh, only the server has a complete knowledge of everything. Um, and so in that world, we still get to keep uh, that data that's in the database private until someone encounters it in the world or whatever. And so uh, I, I think that there is enough stuff that you can keep private in a database type situation um, where someone could still run the game. They just wouldn't have any of our rules or our, you know, actual combat systems or whatever they are. Right. Um, But then they could go build their own systems on that engine instead, you know, and, and hopefully if we did actually lose interest in our game, we would open source whatever we could of the database itself. Right. Um, You know, uh, if we ended up hiring people, there might be restrictions on certain things, but you know, uh, hopefully everything would be um, done in such a way that we could open source it if we ever stopped working on it someday absolutely all right well that's all we have for you this week thank you very much for listening until next week thanks